you must have to go to work. Well, it seems like a fitting time to talk about the subject of work. So that's what we're going to talk about. Last week we talked about leisure that was preparing for those who aren't here today. They're out somewhere leisuring. Uh, the rest of us will leisure this afternoon. Uh, but labor. Here's a question. Is labor a curse or is it a blessing? Which is it? Well, I couldn't find anything in uh, the books that I had that would give a definitive history of the origin of Labor Day in the United States. But the idea internationally actually started in 1833. A fellow named Robert Owen, who was a socialist, he declared that May 1st of that year was the beginning of the millennium. Of course, he was wrong, but being wrong has not stopped a lot of people from saying a lot of stupid things, has it? Well, the first observance of Labor Day was in Paris, May 1st, 1889. And the reason that May Day is celebrated in communist countries on May 1st, that, why that date? It's because of this. So our bi-socialists is we're going to celebrate and honor the working people. Well, in the United States, we not only celebrate and honor working people by giving them a day off, but management gets the day off too. Those in management are happy about that. Well, work is one of those things we've got a love-hate relationship. And I think that's a pretty good description. We, we, we love it, we hate it. What do you do with it? As one person said, work is something that when we have it, we wish we didn't. When we don't have it, we wish we did. Is that true? And that probably says more about the nature of man, really, than the nature of work. But another fellow put it this way. When it comes to work, there are many people who will stop at nothing. Think about that a minute. Well, why such a love and hate for work. Why is it when we labor hard, we dream about taking a vacation? And yet, as Anatoly France put it, man is so made that he can only find relaxation from one kind of labor by taking up another. So for some of us, by the time we get back to vacation, we can't wait to get back to work so we get some rest. We're bushed, we're beat, because we exchange one kind of labor for something else, and we're tired. Well, labor has two sides of it. We find in the scriptures that there is at least one aspect we hate because it reminds us, or at least it should remind us, of the curse that we are under because of Adam's sin. And yet at the same time, there's a side of work that can only be called a blessing from God. We have to label it that way. And this morning I want to look at both the curse and the blessing of labor, as well as then take a, a look at the labor of our Lord and our labor for Him. So first we're going to deal with the curse of labor. The curse of labor arises in Genesis chapter 3. If you'll recall from that chapter, and you can turn there, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19 in a minute. That tells the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And uh, they did the initial labor, but the serpent comes to Eve and deceives Eve. She partakes of the tree that's in the midst of the garden that God had said, You shall not eat it, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she gives to Adam... He eats of it, and mankind is plunged into sin. Now, it's important to note here, this was not Eve that brought mankind into sin. It was Adam. Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing, and he flagrantly disobeyed the Lord. Romans 5 is clear. Our sin nature traces to Adam, not to Eve. Okay? So, ladies, anytime some guy wants to blame Eve, you give him an elbow and say, ah, it was Adam. Okay? You guys are the problem. Okay? 
Well, in chapter 3, we go on in verses 14 through 16, we now find the effects. They have sinned. There are consequences. And there's a curse pronounced on Eve. There's a curse pronounced upon the serpent. And then verse 17, we find the curse on Adam and what is cursed because of him. Genesis 3.17 says, And to Adam he said, this is God speaking, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is the curse of labor. Ever since Adam, man has had to earn his living by the sweat of his face while fighting against a cursed earth. Remember, Adam and Eve had been in the Garden of Eden where they took care of the garden, but that did not require the kind of labor it takes for us to take care of a garden. It was a pleasurable thing to do. They did not have to contend with weeds like we do now. Let me tell you a little about a little first-hand experience I've had with this. Most of you know that I usually have a fairly large garden on the other side of the parking lot. Uh, this year, because we were gone uh, all of June, I did not want to come back to a garden full of weeds. I'm lazy, okay? I didn't want to have to contend with that and then feel real bad about little puny plants and big weeds. So I said, we're, we're going to skip it. Give it the... Give the garden a sabbatical this year. Most years it's out there and people say, that's a nice garden because it's always nice to look at something that's well-ordered and it's got good things to eat out there. You know, I see sometimes people walk out and they look at it and they're salivating over my corn. So I feel sorry for them. I give them some. All right? Well, that's a tip for next year, all right? You salivate right, and, but you have to take the zucchini with the corn, all right? No corn without zucchini. You know what they, they said about someone who has to buy zucchini in the store? Must not have friends. Okay, but gardening... And, you know, that's usually a pleasurable thing. But every year, it takes sweat. First in the spring, and the first year I did it by hand, but now i got a rototiller. I get out there with a the rototiller, but you know what? I get done, I'm sweaty, I'm dirty. It's labor. So now the soil's prepared. And then you've got to get out there, and you've got to plant all these seeds. And that's sweaty. Then you've got to fertilize it all. And finally, the plants start coming up, the ones you want. And as soon as they come up, guess what else is coming up? Weeds. So you've got to go back and weed it. And you've got to keep doing that all summer long. And it takes sweat. And in fact, when harvest comes, you've got to go out and pick it all. It takes more sweat because that's usually when it's hot. It's a sweaty thing, isn't it? So it may look nice, but it takes sweat. Now, any of you who have ever gardened, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, a garden for things you're going to eat or a flower garden, you have noticed that when it is a dry year, your plants struggle. You've got to keep watering them because it's dry. They don't like it. It's, it's too dry for them, the plants that you want. But there are weeds that seem perfectly designed to just love dry weather, and they just blossom and bloom, right? Now, on those years, like this year, where it's extremely wet, there's too much water for the plants you want. But there's other weeds that just love it being wet, and they're big and, right? It's part of the curse. Now, that's just a simple thing, and anybody who's ever worked with the soil knows this is reality. This is the curse that was laid upon the earth because of Adam. It's the curse of labor. But it's not just the toil of laboring hard and sweating. It is fighting against a cursed earth because you can labor hard, and sometimes you find you have very little or nothing to show for it at the end. You ever had that? It happens with gardening. It happens in a lot of other labor you do, too. 
Such is the meaning behind so many of the verses in Ecclesiastes in which Solomon laments the vanity of life whenever that life is lived apart from meaning in God. Let's consider some of the statements he's made. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He's got quite a few statements here. In verse 10, Solomon says, And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Sounds good so far. Then verse 11 comes. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Ooh, that wasn't quite the ending we were hoping for. It sounded good there in verse 10. Look down to verse 22 and 23. Here Solomon says, For what does man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. You work hard and what do you get? You gain sorrow, you gain grief, because the satisfaction of whatever you just accomplished is brief. Over in chapter 6, verse 7, Solomon adds to this another summary statement. He says, All of man's labor is for the mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Did you ever notice that? You can go to uh, one of these buffets, and you can uh, have a feast. Several hours later, <laughs> you're hungry again. It just comes back, doesn't it? It's not satisfied. And that's kind of the way it is with labor. There's always something else to do. That's a good description. No matter how much we achieve, there's always this feeling it's not enough. There's, there's more to do. There's more to achieve. There's more to accomplish. Our satisfaction is brief. That's part of this curse. In addition, what you do gain by your labor cannot be taken with you. Worse yet, all the fruits of your labor could be left to a fool. Look back in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 18. He says, Thus I hated all my labor wherewith I had been toiling under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Because I should leave it unto the man uh, that shall be after me. Verse 19. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor at which I labored. And wherein I have been wise unto the sun, this also is vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, and yet to a man that has not labored in it, he shall leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. Again, it's all part of the curse upon man because of Adam's sin. It's part of the curse of labor. Now, it's not just Ecclesiastes. Over in uh, Psalm 90, verse 10, which is written by Moses, Moses said, As for the days of our years... And them are seventy years. And if reason by strength, eighty years. And yet, their strength, labor, and sorrow, for soon it is cut off and we fly away. The Hebrew word here for labor carries not only the idea of exertion, but also carries the idea of misery, travail, and trouble. Isn't that really what life is? There is just this aspect to it. It's part of the curse. I discovered an interesting thing while studying for this. In uh, Genesis 5.29, there is an interesting comment by Noah's father Lamech. 
And as Noah is born, he calls his name Noah, saying, This one shall comfort us concerning our work and concerning the toil of our hands, because of the ground which Jehovah has cursed. So in some fashion, Lamech saw Noah, and his name means rest or comfort, there was this hope to overcome the curse that was upon the, all of his labor. Now, I don't know how Lamech thought this was going to work out, but it shows that even prior to the flood, there was a curse, and it was active. It's even more so now because of the flood. Everything's been changed around. The soil is not with the nutrients it had prior to that. We work harder. We labor harder. Now, all of us are also personally acquainted with this, aren't we? Aren't we all personally acquainted with the curse of labor? The satisfaction you get, you get the job done, and yet it's so brief that satisfaction is temporary, and you can't take it with you. You work hard, and someone else reaps the benefits of your work. Or you work hard, and what you just did comes to nothing. How many of you have had some project that's given to you by your boss, right? And you have worked hard on this thing, you're just about done with it, and then the whole thing's canceled. It's like, what, what did you have me do all this for? Right? They canceled the whole thing. It came to absolutely nothing. And that was your labor. Great way to spend your life, isn't it? And yet, it's part of the curse. Or you put something together and it breaks the first time you try it. Right? I think that children's toys are purposely designed this way, not by man, but by God, to teach us this point. Right? Every Christmas... Parents diligently, they're putting all this stuff together and five minutes after they're, they're opened up, right? they're broken. Hours and broken in five minutes, right? We all have experienced that. It's part of the curse. So the curse of sin, it's made labor vexation, toil, grief, full of sorrow. And yet, not all labor is that way, is it? We find that there is yet a shadow of God's original design for labor in what we are doing because it's also a blessing. And we need to acknowledge that as well. There's a blessing in labor. One of the things that we need to keep in mind from the beginning is about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In fact, Adam is very busy in the garden on the very first day. From day one, he's got a job. In Genesis 1, 28 and 29, it records the general theme. Then chapter 2, it's going to span on this. But in this verse... It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves in the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves in the earth which has life, um, and moves on the earth, uh, I had given every green plant for food, and it was so. God had set it all up. There was work to do from the first day. Over in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we find what took up Adam's first day. He was a busy man. Because part of this idea of dominion is God gave him a very specific job. Here it says, Genesis 19, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a super suitable helper for him. So what was Adam's first job? He had to name all the animals. You know what? That's work. That's labor. 
But there was no vexation, no toil, none, none of the stuff that came later. But work was honorable. He had the garden to keep. But again, like I said earlier, it wasn't like me trying to keep this garden. There was a joy in it. It wasn't by sweat of his brow to get anything to produce. It was producing. He didn't have to contend with weeds. It was a wonderful thing until he, he sinned. Now, that was Adam's primary job. Work to do in the, the garden, and it was good for him to do it. But other scriptures talk about the value and the importance of labor and doing a job well. Even Solomon, in his negative state, he saw that labor was good. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. Here Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? See, our our labor is productive. There is something that comes from it. And it gives us a shadow, a hint of what it had been prior to the fall. But it's still a gift from God. We also need to recognize that this is, is a good thing from God because uh, he talks about it more over in chapter 3, verse 10. Solomon adds this, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Now think of that. What would you do if you had nothing to do? Now that sounds really nice when you're laboring hard, doesn't it? Right? The vacation. But any of you who have been out of work for a long period of time, you know it drives you nuts. It's miserable. Absolutely miserable. And Solomon recognized this. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor, it is the gift of God. What we produce, we can enjoy the benefits of that. It is the gift of God. We can be grateful for it. We also need to recognize that the work we have is given to us by God and then thank Him for it, not complain about it. Thank Him every day you can go to work. There's nothing wrong in honest work. There's no disgrace in honest work. There is disgrace in dishonest gain and in idleness. In fact, work is a remedy for a whole host of maladies. Work is the solution to poverty. It's also a solution to, believe it or not, sickness and melancholy. You got someone who's depressed, get them working. It solves it faster than anything else. They've got to keep active. It's a solution. The Apostle Paul said that those who would not provide for their own families were worse than infidels. He went on to say that those who are unwilling to work shouldn't eat. Don't feed them. Work is honorable before God. It's actually part of his blessing to us. Now, we live in a society that is quickly losing its Puritan work ethic. And we need to be honest, that ethic is one of the legacies our Christian forefathers has given our nation. And it's a wonderful thing. Because it's that work ethic that made this country great. The Puritans succeeded in this land because they understood that God desired them to be diligent workers. They did not work to succeed. 
they succeeded because they worked. And there's a difference, isn't there? Some people want to succeed, but they don't want to work. They want to find the easiest route to it and be lazy. They succeeded because they were diligent in their work. It's the Puritan work ethic. But that's been changing a lot. And a lot of you get frustrated with your co-workers because they don't have that ethic anymore. They're lazy. They want to shrug off their work on you. Some of you are going, yeah, right? Because that's the way they are. There was a uh, report one time by a fellow named George Fuhrman. He found this notice on the company bulletin board. It said, quote, To all employees, due to increased competition and a desire to stay in business, we find it necessary to institute a new policy. We are asking that somewhere between starting and quitting time and without infringing too much on the time usually devoted to lunch periods, coffee breaks, rest periods, storytelling, ticket selling, vacation planning, and rehashing of yesterday's TV programs, each employee endeavor to find some time that can be set aside and known as the work break. Some of you might be in companies that seem like that, right? Where would happen to the ethic? It is honorable to God to do your best, to labor hard. It is a gift from God to labor. And we should be thankful for it and endeavor to please the Lord as we do it. Because this is the example that Jesus Christ set for us. What was the labor of our Lord? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that even as a child, Jesus was busy. He was at the busyness of learning. That was his work. That was his labor. Luke comments after the incident in which Jesus at 12 years old was in the temple and answering and asking questions with the, uh, the, uh, the teachers there, Luke uh, 2.52, says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and men. That was his labor. That was his work. So kids, I understand it's a depressing weekend because school starts, right? Oh, Wednesday, I think some of you go back, some maybe sooner, but school starting. Sorry, vacation's over. But you know what? This is your work. Your work is to learn. Your work is to grow big and to grow strong and to increase not only in those areas, but also in godliness, to have your character developed. And that's part of the reason for school. We want you to gain in wisdom and we want you to gain in character. Most of your lessons really aren't academic. They're dealing with your character. The diligence it takes to sit in the chair and learn the lesson is something that will carry through all your life no matter what you're doing. Even when you forget some of the facts that your teacher's trying to cram into you, the date of whatever in history, or some fancy math thing that you'll never use after you get out of high school, right? Some of you will, many of you won't. Why do they teach these things? Because it's character training. You're going to go in wisdom, to understand the world that God has made, you're going to grow physically, and gain in strength. That's why there's PE courses there. It's not just so you can go have fun. It's to build your bodies up so you can serve better and gain character. That's what our Lord did. And you're following in his footsteps. He also had to learn, grow, and gain favor with God and man. So that's the first thing. As a child, Jesus was working in that labor. Second thing we need to consider is that prior to Jesus' entry in public ministry, all indications are that Jesus would have worked in the family business, which was carpentry. Jesus' father, Joseph, who adopted him, because God the Father is his father, he was a carpenter. And the family business is what you went into. He learned carpentry. He worked as a carpenter. Now, my father was a carpenter. And he's uh, now retired, but he still hasn't stopped working. He's going to find something to fool around with and build. But I can tell you, growing up, I go out with him sometimes, and carpentry is a lot of hard work. 
And when Jesus was doing it, it was even harder work because he didn't have modern tools. Now, I, I kid Jim O'Hearn a lot because he's got these pneumatic nail guns. You know, pump, pump, pump. My dad at least had to hold them and pound them in. They didn't have drills when Jesus was there. It was handwork all the way. It was hard labor. Now, consider this. Most of Jesus' life then would have been spent in the physical labor of doing carpentry. Think about that. Because they didn't have high schools that put off till 18. He would have been working from a young teenager, apprenticed in carpentry and working from that time until he's 30 years old. The majority of his life was spent in laboring in carpentry. Now, is that not quite an example for us? Labor is good for us. Jesus himself did it. Well, then there is the third thing. There's public ministry. And Jesus labored in that for three years. Now, a lot of times people don't think of ministry as much labor. But the description of Jesus' ministry, it includes a lot of labor. Now, I once in a while get someone to joke, hey, it must be nice. You only work one day a week. If anybody thinks that, I've got lots of stories to tell you. There are guys who are lazy and they will try and arrange it to be as lazy as possible, but I don't think that's what has been set the example that, uh, by Jesus for us. What did Jesus do in ministry? Do you know that it was his habit to get up before daybreak and go off and pray? That was his normal activity. So he'd get up and go pray. He traveled all over the nation of Israel and beyond it, not in a car, not in a plane. Rarely did he have a, a donkey. He usually did it by walking. And that's tiring when you're walking many, many miles. Then he was busy with healing people of their diseases and sicknesses. He was casting out demons. He was teaching and preaching from place to place. And I can tell you that preaching can be exhausting. Usually Sunday nights, I'm wiped out. I'm about worthless by the time Sunday night gets here. I'm beat. Jesus, we know from Scripture, would get very tired in his ministries. Over in Matthew 8.24, we find that Jesus was so tired. Now, get the picture of this. He is so tired, he is in a boat. Now, we're not talking about a cushy yacht. We're talking about a fishing boat, okay? Wooden seats. Anybody ever try and sleep on something wooden? It's not comfortable. This boat is in the middle of a lake. And there is a storm. And he's sound asleep. Is that tired? It's physically tired. Jesus was fully human as well as fully God. Last week we mentioned Mark 6.31, but remember, he was trying to get his disciples off to a lonely place because they were getting exhausted. In fact, it says they didn't even have time to eat. And there are times I find that's true. I'm so busy doing here and there something else that, in fact, last night we had a, a function here with the scouting. I was the last one down there. I was running here. It's, where do you have the time to eat? As soon as you're trying to take a bite, there's someone who wants to come and talk to you. Right? So, so I've learned to eat, to you know, get the food on one side and still talk. You've got to do it somehow, right? He didn't have time to eat. It's tiring. It's exhausting. That is how Jesus did his ministry. And we sometimes don't think about that. He worked hard. Now, another thing that Jesus demonstrated in his life is that who he was laboring for was important. He was laboring for the Father no matter what he was doing. And that's important for us. In John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is that I should do the will of him that has sent me, that I should finish his work. It wasn't for himself. He saw something greater. He was working for God. 
Jesus was here to do the will of God and work. In John 5.17, he said, My Father works until now, and I work. And his works were a testimony to who he was and where he came from. In John 5.36, he says, But I have the witness that is greater than that of John, referring to John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me, that I should complete them. The works themselves which I do bear witness concerning me that the Father has sent me. The very thing he was doing said, I am from God. It's his work. It's his labor. So Jesus' example shows work itself is good. Whether at a young age he's growing, he's learning, he's gaining knowledge, he's gaining character, or the work as a carpenter, or his work in ministry, it was all done in fulfilling God's will for him. It was good. We also should be laborers for the Lord. Well, what is the labor we should have for our Lord? Well, it begins by becoming a true Christian, to be honest. We don't think of that as something, but actually that's the first work we should do. Does that mean that salvation is produced by works? No. But understand this. In John 6, 27 through 29, there were the uh, disciples that came up to him, not this part of the 70, and they wanted to know, well, what is the work of God that we should do? Because Jesus said, Work not for the food which perishes, but for the food which abides into eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for him has the Father sealed. And they're confused. They said to him, Well, what should we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered said, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. You know what? It takes some work sometimes to believe. Because belief isn't this leap of faith out in darkness. It's rational. We believe what God has said because the Bible proves itself to be true. You know what? There's a lot of mental exercise sometimes in comparing everything. It says, you know what? It is true. God is right. We need to believe what he has said. We need to work through our doubts. Anybody ever had doubts about God? I have. Anybody come to wonder, is it true? I have. And it takes work to work through all these things, to figure them out and say, why am I doubting? What is the problem? What is it I don't understand about God that I'd have any doubts at all? It takes some labor. The first work of God is that you believe on him who had sent him. We need to believe God. You've got to work through the doubts that you may have. Well, then there's what labor for the Lord should we be doing? Well, first we need to believe, and then it comes down to attitude and work ethic. We are to demonstrate our godly character by how we live in every situation. Remember Matthew 5:16. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's all the kind of stuff you do. That's your attitude, that's your action, and that's the thing that you're doing. Do your words, your actions demonstrate that you belong to Jesus Christ? Can other people see Christ living in you? That is the starting point for laboring for the Lord. Now, our laboring for the Lord also takes place wherever we are employed. doesn't matter who signs the paycheck. Your boss, if you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And here, understand, Paul is actually talking about those who are slaves. And uh, none of you are slaves. You may feel like that. My brother once commented to his boss, he says, you can't fire me. He says, why can't I fire you? He says, slaves have to be sold. 
Well, you may feel that way, but you're not a slave, okay? So Paul's comment here, even stronger. Ephesians 6, 6 and 7. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Who's your real boss? It's Jesus Christ. It's not whoever signed the paycheck. Jesus is really the one you're working for. Are you laboring in a manner worthy of Him? And then there's the labor for our Lord in whatever specific ministry God wants us to do. Whatever your gifts are. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. They all deal with the fact that God has gifted those He's called to Himself, every Christian, with specific ways that He wants them to minister. He also grants them certain ministries with certain effects from that. He wants us to be busy serving Him, no matter what it is. doesn't matter if it's something very public or something very behind the scenes. I'm doing something very public, but right now there's people downstairs watching over the little ones in the nursery. They're serving the Lord just as much as I am here. It's honoring to Him, and it glorifies Him what they're doing. Some people may uh, have a ministry that's very open, has wide effects. I'm preaching to, I don't know, 120 people, 130 people here. There's other people. It's a one-on-one Bible study. It's still honoring to the Lord. It's where they're gifted. Some people may have a, a gift of mercy that exhibits itself. They can handle going to the hospitals. And there's the tubes and the smells and all that stuff. And they bring comfort there. Some of you may walk into the hospital see that and faint. Okay? That's not where you're going. But on the phone, you're praying with someone who's hurting. It's a ministry of compassion. Whatever the ministry is, however it, it, it comes out, some of you uh, will come, you'll help clean the church. Some of you are ministering because you know your friend has a need and you're going over and helping them with whatever that is. It's a gift of help. However it's manifested, it's serving the Lord with your gifts. The purpose of all spiritual gifts is told for us in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, saying it's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good for the whole body. It's building everybody else up as your gift works with their gift. Ephesians 4, 12 states it this way, for the work of service, that's what we're about, the ministry of service, the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. Whatever gifts you have is used for God's glory as it helps the whole body mature and become more like Christ. So are you using the gift or gifts that God has given you? Again, it doesn't matter what the particular thing is. Are you using them? Each and every gift and ministry the Lord uses is work for Him. It's honorable to Him. There's no work too small, too menial, too insignificant. It's for Him. It is significant. It's not menial. And it's not small. It's for Him. And He's big. Okay? Well, let me add a couple other things here. First, be clear, your works are very important. It will be by your works that you will be judged by God. In Matthew 16, 27, Jesus commented that the Son of Man shall come in glory of His Father with His angels. Then it says, and He will reward every man according to His works. Now that can be a little scary. In fact, it's downright frightening for those that are not Christians. Why? Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, deals with the judgment of non-Christians based on their works. And it says this, They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
Now, that's not a weighing out of, hey, my good deeds were better than my bad deeds, so I tip the scale, I'm in. That's not the way it works. One bad deed outweighs everything because you're guilty. So God's going to judge you on what have you done? Did you do evil? You're guilty. You're condemned. That's for the non-Christian. That's the judgment. Your works will condemn you. It's not me or some other Christian or anybody else. You condemn yourself by the very things you do. That's for the non-Christian. Understand that. That's the bad news. But the good news is that there's hope, isn't there? Because all that bad can be taken care of by one person who pays the price, Jesus Christ. He died in your place. You're clean. It's all gone. It's been paid for. There is nothing bad there. You will not be at that judgment, the great white throne judgment. But all that are there, they're non-believers, and that's how they're going to be judged. Fairly, equitably on what they have done. All the evil. But what about Christians? Well, even Christians are going to be judged. Now, we're not going to be judged for condemnation. We're not going to have some evil that outweighs our good and sends us to hell. Instead, this is cleaned. We're clean before God. We wear Christ's righteousness. Instead, God is going to judge our works to see whether they're fitting or not. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, First Corinthians 3.12, Paul writes, well, I'll start in verse 11. Paul writes this, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. In other words, what's going to be judged here is the quality of your work. Notice, who are you doing it for? A lot of people who do quote-unquote ministry, but it's all in the flesh. It's about themselves. What glory am I getting out of it? There's no rewards for that. Scriptures actually have quite a few um, places that deal with rewards for those who labor for the Lord. Different kinds. And here are some of the verses. Uh, James 1.12, 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, 1 Thessalonians 2.19-20, and 20, 2 Timothy 4, verses 5 and 8, and 1 Peter 5, verses 2-4. through 4. These deal with crowns, different kinds of crowns that we are given for our labor, our work for the Lord. There are rewards. Are we gaining the gold, silver, precious stool, um, jewels that, that gain these rewards? Are the things we're doing wood, hay, and stubble, which are burned up, and they don't translate into heaven. So our works are important for us even as Christians. And then we have to consider this. Your works reveal your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasures brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. If your heart has not been washed and sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ, then your evil heart is going to reveal itself in what you say and what you do. You can't stop it. It is going to reveal itself one way or the other. In Matthew 15, 18, Jesus brought up the same point and said their heart was revealed in things like evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault, witness, slanders, etc., etc. It comes out. But a heart made pure by the Holy Spirit is going to manifest itself in good works and praise to God. 
There's a big difference, but it comes down to your heart. Is Christ there or not? Jesus said in nine, uh, John 9, verse 4, something else that needs to be included in this. Don't put off your labor. Don't be a procrastinator. Jesus said this of himself. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while his day, the night comes, and no man can work. How long do you think you have to serve God? Whether it's in spiritual ministry or the physical labor you have in providing for your family or in learning. How long do you think you have? Not one of us here knows. We don't know when night comes. We don't know if we walk out that door and get in our car if we're going to make it home because you might not. We don't know that before the end of the service Christ could come back and that's it. We who are Christians, we're in a better place. Praise the Lord for it, right? But those without, that's it. Don't put off laboring for the Lord. If you think you're, you want to do something for Him, get busy and do it. Don't keep procrastinating because you don't know how long you even have to work. Well, the curse of sin has left a negative aspect of labor, hasn't it? We all suffer from it. There's a curse. We work hard, we sweat. It's a constant battle against all sorts of problems. You finish something and you've got to redo it. And it's, just, it's constant. Always something you've got to fix. The curse of sin comes in the second law of thermodynamics. Things go from order to disorder. Why is it you leave a room, no one goes in there, and yet you walk back and it's all in disorder? You don't even have to send the kids in there. It'll do it all by itself. Okay? It just goes to disorder. We're fighting that. We labor because we're fighting this curse. But labor is also a good thing. It's the gift of God by which we earn our living, we enable ourselves to serve others, and by which we serve the God who created us. Jesus Christ himself set the example as a child, as a carpenter, in ministry, and who he worked for in every situation. He's actually working for God. And that's where the most important aspect. Are we keeping in mind who our boss is? Who we're actually laboring for? Who should be glorified? If we do, then we can really fulfill what uh, 1 Corinthians 15.58 tells us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes we get tired, but we can come back to hear us. No, we're going to keep on. It's not in vain in the Lord. It is in vain if it's for yourself, but it's never in vain if it's for the Lord. He's keeping track. He knows exactly what he's doing. So you're working for yourself? You're working for a boss? You're working for a company? Or are you working for Jesus Christ? Let's labor for him. Father, thank you so much for your blessing. And Father, what a blessing it is to have something even like labor, which is cursed, to yet still be a blessing. Father, we certainly long for that day when the curses will be removed and we'll be with you in eternity. And the labor will be such as was originally with Adam in the garden. But until then, we do want to keep in mind ourselves this precious promise. Our labor for you is not in vain. That labor in the Lord is never in vain. Father, you're keeping track. You know exactly what's going on. And you do honor yourself through it. 
Father, admittedly, sometimes we work hard and we, we think, I'm hardly doing anything. It just seems such a small pittance of, of something to do for you who created us, and yet you're honored by that. You desire us to do that. So, Father, we'd ask the Holy Spirit just to keep us encouraged in, in whatever it is that we need to be doing. Father, leading us to find whatever gifts we have, whatever ministries you want us to serve in. But, Father, even more than that, that in the daily aspects of everyday existence, we keep in mind that we work for you. The way we work, our attitude, our diligence, is to bring praise and glory to you, whether it's a secular job or a spiritual ministry. You are worthy of all that we are. So, Father, even tomorrow as we can enjoy a, a day off from the normal labor, at least most people. Father, let us praise you. Not that we have some time for some leisure, which is a blessing, but also that we do have work. For it is from you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.